Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Jeremy Hermans, co-founder and CEO of DocWorks, a cloud-based dockside solution that helps simplify and automate marine service businesses. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, Jeremy, I noticed that you've worked in quite a few different industries. It seems like you have interests that lie in a lot of places. When you decide where you go next, how do you how do you choose? Wow. So, you know, I started my early career in search and at a company called Overture and then Yahoo and then the agency kind of with big brands. And the first startup that I went to was a company called LegalZoom. And I'll tell you, it is not sexy to sell Secretary of State forms and to have lawyers being some of your endpoint customers. So I found that as a challenge and, you know, specifically I was hired as a digital marketer. Um, and so it was like, okay, I need to actually make something that's not cool. I need to make it, you know, not only B2C, but also B2B. And so that was a great challenge to do. And I was there for just over four years. Um, I went over to another company that I'd say is equally unsexy, which was called Service Titan. And you have to remember, you know, when I went there, People didn't look for plumbing software or HVAC software, right? It was field service management or field management software. And so, you know, that was also a big challenge where it's like, okay, how can we make plumbing software cool? How can we create a brand out of this that somebody actually wants to follow? And how can we be an authority in an industry that's really been there and doesn't really adopt or like technology per se um, traditionally? Well, Service Titan has done fantastically well. I feel like uh, as an investor, I hear people comparing their startups to Service Titan all the time. We're, you know, this for we're Service Titan for this, and uh, using that as the benchmark. Yeah, it's nice to be used, I guess, as like a a VC analogy on a lot of things. We're the Service Titan for Marine Services. We're the House Call Pro for you know Marine Services, and I think you know from my perspective, Service Titan really nailed a business that was blue collar trades, and they they created a brand there, um, you know, born in the trades, built for the trades, um, where, you know, I think the actual customer base could relate. And a lot of times the big disconnect between a great product, but not having that go to market or that product market fit is the fact that the the audience or the consumer or the endpoint customer couldn't really relate to the software, why they built it or a technology industry. And I think with Aura and Vahe, they bridged that so well. With that business in particular, I feel like that was also an example of this whole digitization. You know, people were going from phone calls, pen and paper, things like that. What were your learnings from that experience at Service Titan that got them over the you know the hump to be able to adopt digital technology? Wow, this is uh, you know you're not going to get your customers just to adopt your software by hiring Mike Rowe or somebody from Dirty Jobs. <laughs> I think, you know, obviously that is a strategy I do, did want to play in uh, Procore, a portfolio company, um, uh, Service Titans also did that. But, you know, it's you nailed it, which is you have this 50-50 audience. You have that pen and paper. I've been doing this for 20 plus years. Who are you guys in Glendale to tell me or you or you software company in NorCal to tell me how to run my business? And I think you have those. But then you also have this kind of baby boomer generation 
that's retiring and this younger generation of managers, tradesmen, um, technicians that are in the field that don't have any real hesitance to adopt technology. So that dissonance that older baby boomer generation had, they've been doing it this way for a long time. They're comfortable with it. My business is, is successful. Why should I change? You had that group that just needed to have education They'd have the aha moment when they saw a demo because they'd be like, wait, I don't need to have QuickBooks. I don't need to hassle my bookkeeper. I don't need to talk to my manager at the end of the week to see you know, how much collections and receivables I have. So once they have that aha moment, the hardest part is getting them to actually get on a demo, right? Because they don't feel the need. Then the younger generation, heck, they're they're basically mobile phone addicts, right? They're ordering their pizza, they're doing Uber Eats, they're 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 Uber normal for um, going places. So they're easy to to adopt an application once it gets in front of them. So I think, you know, from that perspective, it's tough. And in a blue collar trade, you have to show them through escape and arrive. Look, this is the pain point that you're in. This is the situation. You can't grow your business. You're not retaining technicians. You're, you don't have 30%, 40% recurring revenue with service plans. You're not in a place right now where, yeah, it's easy to think of where you can be in a year. And I think part of it is giving them that journey, that buyer's journey that shows them that once they become a customer, they're actually going to get to a place where analogously, you know, oh, did you know, you know, um, White Glove Group down in San Diego, they've got, you know, over 100 trucks on the software. They, you know, they were struggling as well. They've grown 30% since they've been on Service Titan, right? You give them that testimonial so they can relate to where they want to be, that aspirational component, and then it becomes a much easier sell. But there's really no easy answer other than just education and then, you know, going through a sales process. To your point around this rise of the kind of millennial generation now coming into roles as buyers and you know decision makers at companies, one of the previous podcast guests referred to our generation as the sandwich generation. We are willing to put up with horrible pen and paper processes. We'll suck it up, but we want things that are more digital friendly. And you know, the last um, last decade was really this whole concept around the. Uh, the consumerization of enterprise, where we all now have these beautiful experiences on our mobile devices. How do we bring that into enterprise? And one thing that I feel like might resonate well with you is I've actually been toying with this idea that now I'm seeing a shift to the enterprisation of consumer. And what I mean by that is not real consumer, I mean small business. So you have these fragmented markets where individual people or small teams are trying to run a business and they need all the things that a, an enterprise has. They need sales and marketing and HR and finance and operations and all that. How do you give them those tools to do it? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, our SMBs to our mid-enterprise. Um, so when we launched our beta, we tried to go after the smallest customer, right? Two to three technicians, maybe a sole proprietor who's running the, the whole show themselves, but really get it to somebody who's in the field with the software who can give us feedback. As we started to move up, get shops at a four or five, six techs, 10 technicians or more, you get into much more complex workflows sometimes. And so you just nailed it with like that, the consumer consumerization of enterprise they have the same needs as a big shop that has 30 employees, right? And so we can't just give them limited functionality. And so as you start, you know, it's the same over at Big Commerce, same at LegalZoom. You always start for that endpoint customer. And you you nailed it earlier with your statement, which is the, and this is not exact, but from National Marine Manufacturers Association, if I'm not wrong, between 2019 and 2020, or it was 2020 and 2021, the average vessel owner age decreased over 20%. So it was one of the largest decreases in over, I think, two decades in the ownership age. And what's that showing is that we used to put up with all these things, right? My upholsterer would come by and give me an invoice on a yellow piece of paper. I'd write him a check for half. He wouldn't be able to take a credit card. There's no affirm payments for replacing an engine on a boat. So I think, you know, 
us as vessel owners put up with a lot just because it's a passion, it's a recreation of ours, and it's something that it's a hobby, right? So we didn't think it's like my home. I need to have it serviced in, in that exact way. So it's really exciting to see that not only will we benefit the vessel owner, but also the technicians and the people working on the boats, and then all the way up to that that owner of that SMB or mid-price company who can actually use the software and free up their time and actually see the benefits that normal shops of 20, 30, 40 techs would only see the benefits of. Well, I know literally nothing about boats or the marine services industry in general. So tell me a little bit about the industry. How big is it? How many people uh, own boats? What is the requirements of maintaining a boat? I know it involves a lot of maintenance and a lot of cost. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really kind of amazing to see the average. Uh, well, let's just go back to 2020. Um, there was $49 billion spent in recreational marine uh, in the U.S. alone. And so what does that mean? That's everything from new boats, used boats, outboards, accessories, and then also includes things like fuel, dockage, and insurance. So if we strip out things like fuel, dockage, and insurance, you're looking at a $39.3 billion consumer spend that's up almost 20% year over year. And that's between, that's on the 2020 uh, National Marine Manufacturers Association. The interesting thing is the average boat takes about 10% of its value to maintain annually. So when we start to look at the numbers that it's exactly and how much it costs to even just maintain a boat, you need to have, first off, if it's over 26 feet, you have to get a survey. If anything's broken on the survey, you get a schedule A list that basically says you have to repair all these things before you can get an insurance policy. Well, you can't get a slip without an insurance policy. So when you think about it, it's a pretty um, regulated industry. And then also like for my slip in San Diego, I have to have a half a million dollars in um, liability coverage. And then I think it's a hundred or two hundred fifty thousand for EPA oil spill coverage here in the South Bay because it's San Diego Bay. So there's a lot of things that people don't think about from the expenses. Now, look, DocWorks isn't targeting the the spend for fuel, dockage, and insurance. But what we are going after is basically that the uh, thirty nine billion dollars for new boats and outboards that need to be maintained and sold, used boats, and then the accessories. And most people don't know, but a lot of accessories on a boat need to be installed by a professional. Um, there's a group called the ABYC, which is the American Boat, Builder, boat Building and Yachting Council. And they're kind of our Lloyds of London for America. So when your boat breaks, uh, you file an insurance claim, it gets uh, or warranty work from the manufacturer. It has to be repaired to a standard, just like your electrician or your contractor or um, your plumber at your house. They have to have same type of standards and codes. It's similar for the boating industry. And so it's just really different. And a lot of people don't know about how those industries work together. And so the accreditation and the educational groups for the for the industry, like I mentioned, National Marine Manufacturers Association, National Marine Electronics Association, um, or even ABYC, they're all the groups that create those standards that everybody tries to live by. Um, and we're also partnering with them so that we can integrate those so that a technician who worked on your boat, we know if he's certified in fiberglass or are they a master technician? So they know all things from electrical to plumbing to systems. So again, it's a, it's a big industry. It's pretty small from the standpoint of how many players are in it. Um, you know, you can look at things like service Titan or shop monkey, where there's a couple hundred thousand businesses in the U S you know, we're looking at a, a finite number around 50,000 businesses that operate, you know, 75% of them operate in only 20 states because they have to be near large bodies of water, marinas, or the ocean. Interesting. On the, um, yeah, it makes sense that there's this order of operations of you get a boat, you get a survey, you get the insurance, you get your slip. 
Are the insurance players for boats the same insurance companies that would sell you a home or auto plan or are they specialized insurers? Yeah. So Geico is one of the biggest. They're the ones that that are partnered with US Boat. Um, but then you have everybody from like my bank, USAA, has recreational marine insurance. Um, Aon is big into underwriting for insurance. And then they're even a broker for some larger um, underwriters globally. So I just took a sailing trip from Annapolis all the way through the Panama Canal back to San Diego on my boat. And I had to have offshore insurance, which most U.S. carriers won't provide. Um, so I'd actually go to an English carrier, UK carrier to get that insurance. How long did that trip take? Uh, that was about, it was two parts. I started before we knew what co- uh, that COVID thing was. Um, and then <clears throat> my wife was six months pregnant. I was in Martinique uh, with a boat that had broken at the time. It's kind of a, a long story, but the first boat I bought to make that trip ended up being a... Uh, complete and total loss. It broke apart. Uh, we had basically longitudinal stringers and bulkheads that broke during the passage. Um, I sailed it to Martinique where the manufacturer was. Uh, they had a repair facility there and I learned that the boat was basically um, broken and ended up uh, learning a lot about the marine industry and either you know how to repair or how not to repair, how to work with underwriters, how to understand marine uh, um, insurance inspectors. Um, and that's really where the story started for DocWorks. And uh, from that standpoint, I learned a ton about surveys, admiralty law and the industry. And that's where I was like, look, if the people who worked on my boat earlier had the software, um, they, I may have been able to avoid uh, the ownership experience that I had. And, you know, look, people who use Service Titan, House Call Pro, um, you know, uh, barbershops that use Squire, um, you know, they have a platform that during COVID allowed them to get uh, PPL loans, sorry, not PPL, but allowed them to get paycheck protection loans, um, allowed them to get uh, SBA loans. Why? Because they had the tracking and the, the invoice software and the history to get those loans. And it's really interesting to see that uh, one of our the things that have come up during sales is like, hey, if I use your software, it's is it going to be easier for me to get government assistance? Or is it easier? And this was, you know, we launched during COVID, easier for me to um, uh, uh, be able to get a loan uh, or receivables financing? The answer was 100% yes. How has global warming and a lot of the environmental stuff changed the situation for both boat owners and companies that do maintenance and repair and also the marinas, I guess? Wow. That's a really good question. Um, I think that one of the biggest things that I know we're, we're fighting for from um, the manufacturers to the industry groups to the associations is really keeping access for the public. Um, you know, boat ramps and access so that you can put your trailer in the water or access so that you can drop your kayak or go paddle boarding or, you know, there's, there's a lot within the recreational marine industry um, or even just put your dinghy in the, in the water so you can go fishing, right? Um, that access has been really slowly dwindling over the years. And when you think of global warming, um, it really affects things like Lake Mead or Lake Powell or a lot of the inland water basins where we have to make sure that you can still launch a boat. You can still use uh, uh, the, the facilities that are there. And it's almost the inverse when you think about it. We have erosion of coastal uh, lands. We have a lot of things that are happening from the access point for um, the oceans and what we call the coastal waterways. Are there any, um, I was just thinking in my head, like there's so many more tropical storms and hurricanes and just these adverse weather events. How does that affect the boating industry? Meaning do you, do typical boat owners evacuate their boats in the case of a hurricane as an example, or do you just keep it where it is? 
Yeah. So when I had my boat in Martinique, um, that is not within the safety insurance, uh, what they call the hurricane box uh, in the Caribbean. So I actually had to move the boat during hurricane season to carry a coup, a small island off of Grenada, chain it down. So put it on stands, chain it down to basically what are, you know, center dividers for freeways, those big concrete uh, blocks, and then ride out the storm. And then literally two days after the insurance ban lifted, uh, which is seasonal every year, um, me and my first mate flew down and started prepping the boat to splash it in the water. So I'd say if you're more of a, uh, I'd say, uh, international traveler, if you're going to the Caribbean, if you're going to, uh, uh, anywhere within Central America, you're going to, um, anywhere where you're going to have these tropical storms specific, uh, specifically as well. Um, you're going to have that issue. The biggest thing with storms is really on, we get the most of them around Texas and the East coast and Southern Florida. And from that standpoint, 100%, a lot of people own a, live in Connecticut and own a boat in Florida. So they have either a boat manager, we call them kind of a, a boat minder. There's a lot of different terms. Uh, my, the person who kind of maintains my boat or a uh, 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 rental captain who will actually go in and try to secure the boats, tie more lines to the docks, make sure that um, all the covers are off of the boat because they'll blow away, secure the dinghy, uh, make sure the sails are put away. You know, if your sail uh, accidentally unfurls during a storm, you're going to lose your mast. Uh, your boat's going to tip over. You'll probably rip through a couple other docks. Um, so there's a lot of things that I think from it. Just think about hurricane prep in New Orleans if you own a business, right? Um, it's pretty similar for boats. And a lot of times I think the biggest damage is done because the people don't have time to go there. So you asked, do people prep their boats during big tropical storms? If you have time and you have the resources, you do. If you're an absentee owner, you probably can't, or you're trying to find somebody who's already busy doing it for 20 other people. <laughs> yeah, man, this sounds like a very expensive hobby, but good news for you and DocWorks because you can position yourself at the center of it. Yeah. And like I said, you know, COVID created a 20% growth between 2019 and 2020 uh, within the, the recreational marine spend. And that's just because it's staycations, right? People were staying, they couldn't go uh, out with their families. Uh, you know, people did less road trips. And if you're on the water, you, you're definitely keeping safe social distancing. And <laughs> you know, you're, also, you're also able to be around those who, you know, maybe you're, who are tested or, you know, are vaccinated and so you can be safe. So, you know, we definitely saw a big jump in the industry. And, you know, I do get this, or I did get this asked from investors, which is, hey, if the economy slows down, you know, what's going to happen to the recreational marine market? The good news is every boat in the water still needs to be maintained. So if it was bought or sold in the last, you know, five years, you're, you're not going to just stop maintaining it because you need to keep it ship shape and seaworthy. Um, but on the same token, you probably, we probably will see a slowdown in the new sales and related accessories that are being installed or changed hands or bought and sold. Um, but, you know, for one of the bi biggest things is uh, a boat is typically um, a luxury spend um, or discretional income type of spend. So it's it's one of the first things that they'll stop spending on, but they're not going to let that depreciating asset depreciate more. Makes sense. How much control do the marinas have over some of the technicians and maintenance crews and things like that? I know in a lot of industries, you have these layers of middlemen who tend to control some access to providers. Is that the case in this industry or no? Yeah, it's it depends. I mean, on the East Coast, I'd say that it's it's a little bit more strict than it is out here on the West Coast. Um, but they are the gatekeepers, right? You can't get on my boat unless, you know, let's say I need to have an upholsterer come in. 
you can't get on my boat until you check into the main office. You check in with the marina manager. They take a picture of your license. They make sure you have a permit with the county to work on boats. And then they give you an, a temporary, you know, neck card and then, you know, a key fob. And so that's your identification and key fobs so you can get into the marina um, and get into the slip or get into the, the dock uh, that, that you need to go to. And I'd say 100% they're gatekeepers. Um, it's, it's kind of been a weird unwritten law where, you know, if you screw up on uh, somebody's boat, specifically like a marina managers or somebody who works for the marina, you're probably not going to get allowed back into the do more work in that marina. Um, but then also uh, for us, we're trying to use it as a channel strategy. So we know where the technicians are working, right? We know where they have to, every single boat has to be worked on either in the water or in a boatyard being hauled out. So we know from those two perspectives, as a kind of a, a way to do channel strategy, we're trying to work with some of the larger providers to be the preferred um, software or even an affiliate of DocWorks so that they can actually mandate because they know that the people are going to have better paperwork, better before and after photos, better tracking, history of the vessel. And those are all important too because a marina, you know, let's just say um, boats do sink. And, you know, when I was in Los Angeles for almost 11 years with my boat, there were three boats directly on my dock that actually sunk in their slip. Um, they had through hulls fail and other things. And they want to know the records. They want to know if the boat's maintained because that's a huge um, environmental hazard for the marina. And they actually get dinged for that because um, of the, the oil and the gas and everything else that spills uh, during one of those uh, sinkings. When the boats sink, do they have to retrieve it or do they just leave it? They literally imagine like you will literally see a boat. Um, I can send you a picture of this from my phone afterwards if you want to. It's in the slip and the mast is sticking up. So they oh, have wow. to put divers in. And this is what I mean. Like this is paid for by the insurance. You end up fighting, you know, either the county or the salvager. It's the first salvager who basically gets on the scene can do it. Um, but yet they, ha they typically have a relationship like a tow truck company with the marina manager. And they put airbags under it and they float it. And then it needs to be hauled out. And then typically they have to take it out of the water, crush it, and put it in a dumpster with a bulldozer. It's quite a process. That is crazy. Wow. That would be kind of cool to see. How did you it originally? Is it is until it's the boat next to your boat. <laughs> yeah, that sounds scary. How how did you originally get into boating? Is this something that your family did growing up or what got you excited about it? Funny story. My dad's from Joliet, Illinois. My mom's from the South Side. Um, my mom doesn't swim and my dad doesn't like boats other than cruise ships that I know of. So uh, I got into it at USC. I got super lucky. Um, my dad uh, was a professor at USC. I did undergraduate there. And they actually have a nautical science program. I'm like, sweet, I can get two units and learn how to sail um, and like basically sail in an ocean for the first time. And one of the prerequisites is you get to go to Catalina for a weekend. And so to me, that was just awesome. I get to sail to an island on a boat with a bunch of other kids. And I had already started getting my pilot's license. I'm kind of a certificate junkie. So I was like, oh, wow. And uh, don't want to age myself, but uh, when I got my pilot's license, we didn't have civilian release GPS. So you're flying use using Loran. Um, and so they're basically magnetic radials that you navigate off of. And it was the same thing for this class. So I literally read the syllabus. I'm like, dude, I'm going to ace the whole navigation part. I don't need to study. This is going to be great. And I just fell in love with the ocean. I ended up um, going through nautical science. I think it was uh, 101, 201, and 301. Um, that's typically with like more offshore and coastal navigation. And then um, Captain Ron Remsberg, who's a professor, said, hey, uh, kid, do you want to do some topside orientations? I won't pay you, but you get to go to Catalina on the weekend and, you know, help teach kids, you know, how a compass works, you know, how to use belaying pins, how to, you know, haul a, how, 
haul a sail and pull a halyard and do all the fun things that um, you do during that weekend. And so I ended up doing 20 or 30 trips and fell in love. And very luckily, um, he referred me to the Orange Coast College of Sailing after I graduated and got on a couple of these Alaska Eagle voyages, which was a former um, Whip Red Cup boat, which is now the Volvo Around the World Ocean Race. And I got to do crew at a young age, you know, didn't have a job, could take three to five weeks off um, and go and sail from like Hawaii to Tahiti delivering a boat for the um, a Sydney Hobart race or drop into Antigua after Antigua race week and sail the boat to the Panama Canal through Venezuela and Colombia. And doing those crew uh, crewings were life changing for me and really fell in love with the sea. Wow, that is crazy. What's the longest trip you've ever gone on sailing? Nonstop would be Hawaii to Tahiti, even though we did stop in Kiribati. Um, and that's just over what, 3,000, three and a half thousand nautical miles. But the trip I just did, uh, right, you know, I, I mentioned I, the boat was stuck in Martinique, uh, actually bought another boat in Martinique, refitted it after all the insurance stuff, uh, got settled and then sailed that, like I said, uh, back to Panama and then, uh, Panama through to, um, Mexico, and then basically all the way up. So we started in Chiapas in Mexico, bypassed all of Central America. Uh, then we went up to uh, Puerto Vallarta, then we went up to Cabo, Cabo de Ensenada, and then up here to San Diego. So that was about 9,700 nautical miles. How long did that take you total? Total about six months. And like I said, there is, so it was about three months and three months. And that includes the refit. And that would be three weeks in Martinique refitting boat number two and about three weeks in Annapolis and Fort Lauderdale refitting uh, boat number one. Have you ever, outside of the experience in Martinique where the boat was kind of done, have you had any other really close calls or scary experiences on the water? You know, I've, I've had really I guess bad luck. You know, one time I arrived in Catalina and Avalon uh, with my fiance at the time, who's now my wife. Um, and I tried to shift the boat uh, into reverse because I was waiting for Harbor Patrol and then going to forward. And it took me about 30 seconds to realize that even though I was in forward, I was still going backwards. Um, so that was a little hair raising where it was going nighttime. We had to pick up a mooring ball. Um, I had to go down the engine room. You know, I'm with somebody who's not really nautically experienced. And had to basically rewire the Morse cable, which is the cable that switches your transition between gears and forward and reverse. Um, and Jimmy rigged that while not looking stressed and having Harbor Patrol breathing down my neck with a spotlight. Um, I've had, you know, electrical failures, batteries die. Um, I can tell you, sure, we've had floorboards floating because, um, you know, a, a bow thruster seal failed and we were offshore in 14 foot seas. Um, there's a lot of little things that happen. And I know I say that they're little, but part of being a captain and being experienced, like I said, being crew on those boats was I learned a lot from amazing uh, leaders, for, uh, first mates and captains, and you try not to lose your cool. So something that's really big, you try not to make a big deal. I think in hindsight, once you get to safety or to shore or back in dock, um, you may sweat a little bit more than you did actually during the incident. Um, but yeah, tons of bad things happen out there, but you try to be prepared. And I think part of getting your US sailing, your ASA, sailing or your certificates of training are to help you prepare for that. And, you know, one of the biggest things is, you know, I've got offshore survival and safety training, and I try to do that every two years. Um, if you're going to go out there, be prepared. Um, don't be a boat owner who actually uh, is unprepared because um, it's, it's, it's not safe. And the only way to get experience is to go out there and learn from others. 
Well, I think uh, if I ever go sailing, I'm going with somebody like you and not somebody who's uh, just got their sailing certificate. Um, I'm much more of a land animal, but I've done a lot of the wilderness first aid and those type of things. So I feel like I'm the person like you if we're going camping or backpacking, but in the water, I'm useless. Yeah. And you'd be amazed. I mean, I've gone out with people who've rented, you know, 55 foot catamarans in Mar Marina del Rey, who, like I said, are ASA certified, but we get out on the water, topping lift breaks, boom drops, one engine won't start, you know, they have no idea what to do. And so it's even cooler because you'll get invited back if you're that person with the know-how and you can make them have a good time on the water as well. I bet. Actually, on that point of a lot of little things going wrong, potentially, um, you know, in a lot of other industries, especially heavy industrials or big machines or big, um, big items that move, preventative maintenance is very top of mind right now. Is that something that the boating industry talks about a lot? Are there companies or IoT devices or things that are trying to do more on the preventative maintenance side? Uh, great question. So that is part of what we're trying to do. Um, most of our customers will have recurring services. Like, you know, if you're on the East Coast, you're in Maryland, you have to have your boat hauled out every winter. You have to have it winterized. You have to have your engine serviced. You have to do these things every single year. You'd be amazed that most people don't even book those in advance, right? It's like, oh, shoot, it's winter again. I got to call Carl, right? Carl's, Carl's going to be booked out with 60 more boats if you didn't call until later in the season. Um, that's pretty typical for the East Coast. West Coast, a lot less. But I still have to have my impeller changed on my Volvo every single year for the fear of it'll get sucked into my intercooler. So that's something that you want to make sure will never happen. And so I guess where I'm going with this is, for me as a vessel owner, I will try to always say, you're going to be here in six months. You're going to be here next year, right? But there really was nothing to officially make that happen. One of the biggest benefits for DocWorks is that we have recurring service plans, right? We want to have more vessel owners have safer days on the water with their family and their loved ones. We want to make sure that your boat has higher resale value and keeps its value and depreciates less. But then also we want to make sure that your technician isn't scrambling reactively for 90% of their jobs and actually has them booked out proactively so that that preventative maintenance component is being addressed for not only by the technician, but also the vessel owner. I think that's super important. And then your second point, which you mentioned, which is IOT. Um, we partnered with a company called BoatFix to provide DocWorks 24-7. It's a device smaller than an iPhone. Um, it, it basically gets glued into your boat. You try to put it below your deck, but you want to hide it. And it provides not only the position data of your vessel every 60 seconds, but also you can do geofencing. It has an app for your iPhone. You can, it'll, it'll tell you if your battery voltage is getting low. It knows the difference. I have a 24 volt system. Uh, Luke, one of our other co-founders has a 12 volt, 12 volt system on his. You can program it to let you know when a state of charge gets low, if your dock, your, your shore power line is disconnected. Or you can connect it to your, your bilge pump and know if your bilge is going off. It'll also tell you if your boat ignition is on, right? And so this is one of those things that we're enabling and integrating into DocWorks so the technicians can see this data. It provides the vessel owner with a much more comprehensive, what we call recurring service plan and diagnostics on the boat. And also the technician is not going to go out to a boat that's maybe 40 minutes away. I'm using Maryland as an example where the, the marinas are typically out in the, the, the boondocks from the, the local areas where the West Marines are and everything where you're getting the supplies where the boat has a dead battery or the bilge is full. You'd be amazed at the rejection rates in the South because of the rain and the weather there where they'll get to a boat, the bilge is filled, they can't do any engine work. They try to turn on the bilge pump, the battery's dead because it just it died because shore power shorted out or it got disconnected or somebody kicked it. Um, these things are very common. And so 
to just limit the rejection rate for a technician who's going to a marina to work on three or four boats during that one or two day period to knock out a bunch of work orders or jobs is super important. And then giving that vessel owner the peace of mind that, hey, my boat's still there or the technician, hey, the boat's not in slip A36 anymore. Where did it go? Hopefully it didn't sink. (laughs) Yeah. you, You know, you're not going to like my house, right? I know a plumber is going to go to my address. It's not going to change on a Thomas guide into the Google Maps, right? It's right. going to be the same. This actually happens a lot of times. And like I said, some shops have anywhere between 10 to 20% rejection rate from technician dispatch to actually being able to complete the job. That's hilarious. That's a really funny nuance of the industry that I never would have thought about. Like The yep. address actually could change. Or, oh man, dude, we took the boat over to Hilton Head. We got wasted, bro. I rented a, a flip. Like these things, like I'm telling you, these things happen because you can't boat and drink. And so it's really weird to think about like, you know, nobody's going to tell you that you can't like be in your home because you had a couple too many drinks. Right. Um, again, these are the things that happen and these are the things we're trying to help. These are a lot of them are small edge cases, but it just shows you how nuanced and niche the marine services industry is. And typically, if you're having your toilet replaced, you don't give them a 50% deposit because you need to order the toilet, right? It's usually going to be done the same day. And you know, for boats, look, there's so many manufacturers, so many parts that aren't made in the US that typically for mine, French built boat, uh, my ML, it'll take me anywhere between three and six weeks to get a simple part from either France or from Martinique. Oof. And I bet the past couple of years have made it even worse with all those supply chain issues. Horrible. The only good thing is that the Euro to US has gotten a little bit better. So I'm not paying a premium. It's about equal. Yeah. Now it's almost at parity, which is crazy. That's Mm -hmm. the first time in my lifetime we've seen that. I wish it was like that when I outfitted my boat, to be honest. I bet. Well, you've seen a ton of industries, especially some of the unsexy industries. Are there any others outside of marine services that you think are also ripe for a disruption similar to what you guys are providing with DocWorks? Yeah, you know, I've got some friends over at like Holler Hero. They're doing it for um, waste management, right? So for pickup and drop off of uh, basically dumpsters and trash pickups uh, for large uh, job sites. Um, That was really awesome. He's also a a service Titan uh, alumni. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of industries like that that I would say just people don't know about. And when you think of it, look for industries that are behind the scenes. Look for things like, when you typically rent a boat, you don't think of, you think of, Hey, who owns this? What yacht management company is, you know, am I going to their office and they're giving me sodas and chips and, you know, uh, walking me to my boat and carrying my luggage. That's what you think of. You don't think about the guy that they hire to actually fix it after you break it on a seven day Caribbean bare boat charter. And so, you know, for us, there's the commercial marine industry. Also, we want to get into obviously in the next you know decade or so. But just like Service Titan and House Call Pro, you got to start small, move up into mid-enterprise, move up into franchises and larger fleets, and then typically then the jump to commercial will happen. Um, and so for me, you know, gosh, I'm trying to think of some of the the low hanging fruit that's out there. Um, you know, with some of our investors, when we presented our our pitch deck, they're like, this is probably one of the last vertical SaaS industries that has a GMV this large that hasn't been disrupted. And, um, you know, look, an industry may have been disrupted. I can tell you our competitors before us tried to actually target the vessel owner. They didn't try to target the small to medium business that was working on the boat and they failed. Why? Because a vessel owner can't mandate that, you know, they're one out of a hundred customers, you know, I'm going to use software on this one invoice and not my normal QuickBooks because you want to have this comprehensive vessel history. Um, and so, you know, when you think of it, there may be Fleet management was similar, very large and wide. I think you explained it earlier on. And then it went to these very niche verticals. Um, when people told me that there was um, 
uh, I think, what is it called? Pooly? Is it, what's the one where you can now rent out your pool in the backyard? Swimply. Oh my, Swimply. Like I couldn't even think of that. Right. And so that was one of those things where they actually looked at the asset of a homeowner that's being underutilized and it's already being utilized on something like Airbnb, but then they just really went so vertical into just somebody who wants to use a pool. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of these industries are going to go. Um, it may not just be a total industry like marine services. It may be something as, as small as, you know, all right, you can't actually take the boat out, but maybe you can rent the boat while it's in a slip and have a cheese party or, you know what I mean? And so like, I know if there's Airbnbs, people will Airbnb houseboats. Um, I'm not sure if a marina manager would allow you to Airbnb, Airbnb out a normal vessel. Um, but I think that there's really interesting plays within all these different industries. I'm just all things boats right now. Makes sense. You know, with the Swimply and Turo for cars, Airbnb for houses, I've heard a few that are trying to do it for boats. If you take underutilized assets that have, you know, high price points, so, you know, high barrier to entry, but, you know, people might want to use it once a year to your point of have a wine and cheese party on a boat in a slip. That would be fun. I mean, that'd be a great birthday party. So I can see, a, you know, vertical specific company doing that. The Hauler Hero, too, is also a great one. Waste management, definitely huge industry, very unsexy, very slow to adopt tech. Yeah. And again, they had fleet management software, right? They didn't have something that was great. Um, and so you, you nailed it with the consumerization of enterprise. They jumped right on that in quite a large industry. Yes. Well, this has been awesome. I learned a lot. I mean, I truly knew very little about this industry, but the last question that I always like to ask us, has there been a piece of advice or words of wisdom you've been given in your career that are kind of words that you now live by? Ooh. Yeah. Um, I think this is really important. So I've been in marketing my whole life, right? I'm now a CEO, but I've been the head of marketing, CMO, VP of marketing, basically demand gen. And I can tell you that of the thousands of campaigns I've launched over my career, it's hundreds that were sustainable, that worked really well, that became what I call business as usual, kind of the core campaigns that drive growth in a business. Um, not only in what you do in your career, but in life, it's not learning what you want to do, it's learning what not to do. And I can tell you as a marketer, that's something I have to teach to anybody who's getting in the business or a young analyst or a young campaign manager that's getting it because you need to launch a hundred campaigns this quarter to find those 10 that are going to kick butt that you can actually then drive growth on. Or you may see that you'll only get 5% incremental from it. That's fine. But it's never going to be that winner that's going to drive 20% growth. Well, move on and try something new. And so from my perspective, um, you know, I can tell you in my career progression, everything I've done, learning what not to do has helped shape almost every decision that has made me get to my dreams now and, and, and my accomplishments from my previous um, positions, which was really disrupting industries and, you know, growing uh, a brand that really wasn't in any type of consumer or business SMB mindset previously. And I can tell you, you know, my dad who's a professor at, at, at uh, Marshall School of Business at USC. Um, he's the one who told me that and it's important. And so, you know, try to launch 30 campaigns that don't work. I can guarantee you they're going to influence the next 10 that you launch after that. You're just not going to know it. It's going to be subconscious. And that's really one of the biggest piece of advice, pieces of advice that I have. 
I love that. And it's so true. I mean, the Pareto principle is very real, right? 20% of things are going to have 80% of the value and knowing what to stop, what to kill, which customers to fire is especially at the early stages of company building. It's what's going to keep you alive and help you get to that next phase. Absolutely. And I think we talked about, you know, pricing and packaging is super important. Um, you know, I, I want to say like work with Price Intelligently, work with Simon Kutcher Partners. doesn't matter who you're working with or whatever pricing consultant you do. One of the biggest things you can do to drive your CLTV to CAC, um, be able to increase your customer acquisition costs and drive growth is to make sure that you're doing that willingness to pay that feature function parity and you're doing the right packaging for your products. I can tell you at every SaaS company I've been at, we've always underpriced at one point when we did the analysis. Yes, I bet. Actually, our pricing advisor is our number one most requested advisor meeting for our portfolio. So you are spot on with that. Uh, I can nerd out about pricing any day. I love it. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. It was really a pleasure talking to you. If people want to learn more about you or DocWorks, where should they go? Yeah, DocWorks.co. We've got a great um, Instagram and Facebook. We also have a Facebook community for anybody who's interested in the marine services industry. And again, you know, uh, absolutely a pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, what can be blue collar trades are unsexy if you think about it from a software standpoint, but it's needed. And providing a service that industries need is something that provides great satisfaction as a person who's a business leader, or even anybody who's working in that industry. Well, and it's clear you're very passionate about the industry and it's a huge market. So keep on keeping on. Thank you. Thanks.